This is History West Midlands. The Chamberlain family created something new and unique in British politics. A dynasty which was not part of the landed aristocracy and inherited wealth, but which was provincial and self-made. From 1876 to 1940, Father Joseph and then his sons Austin and Neville were at the very heart of British public life. Like any dynastic story, there were family triumphs and tragedies, as well as political successes and failures, all of which affected Britain and the world beyond. Historian and author Andrew Reeks reveals how the story unfolded. With their father Joseph, Neville and Austin Chamberlain comprised a unique political dynasty, unparalleled in the past 150 years. It's rare enough in modern British history for a father and son, then for two siblings, to serve in cabinet at the same time, but no other family can boast two brothers who held the office of Chancellor of the Exchequer. All three were within touching distance of ultimate power, but it was Neville who made it to the top of the greasy pole. The Chamberlains represented something new in politics. They were not landed or the product of old money, but Joseph Chamberlain was a self-made businessman, and his power base was not metropolitan but provincial, the metalworking manufacturing combine centred on Birmingham. He was something of a phenomenon. Dynamic, forceful, ambitious and restless, he achieved more in the way of social reform as Mayor of Birmingham in the 1870s than most politicians do in their lifetimes. On the national stage, that impatience to change and improve was channelled into successive crusades, against home rule and then against free trade, which he took to the country and for which he fought passionately to the destruction of his party's unity. Quite evidently, then, he was a strong personality. He made the political weather, and just as surely he shaped the lives of his own family, not only those of his four daughters, but also, of course, his two sons. They were half-brothers, Austin's mother having died young, as did Neville's. The futures for Austin born in 1863, and Neville, born in 1869, were closely mapped out for them. Surprisingly, for a prominent nonconformist family, the boys were educated at rugby school, that bastion of high Anglicanism. But this only signalled that Joseph wanted his sons on the establishment inside track. Thereafter, their paths diverged. Austin was destined for politics. He was sent off first to Cambridge to read modern history, where he developed a fascination for naval history, and then to the continent, for his father devised for him a mini-grand tour of France and Germany to further his political apprenticeship. In Germany, he had dined with Bismarck, who was disappointed in his drinking capacity. Joseph expected less from his second son, Neville. 
whereas he would describe Austin as so attractive, so frank and so intelligent that he will cut me out entirely, he thought Neville unpromising material for politics, insisting he be educated on the commercial side rather than the prestigious classical side at rugby, and thereafter sending him to Mason Scientific College in Birmingham as a preparation for a business career like his father. Joseph's low estimation of Neville seemed confirmed by the failure of his sizal-growing enterprise in the Bahamas. In the 1890s, Joseph invested much money in a forlorn attempt to cultivate barren tropical acres, and Neville, as plantation manager, heroically struggled for five years to make a success of that hopeless operation. It is clear from these formative years that Joseph exercised a huge influence on his sons. That influence continued to shape their careers right on through their lives. Neville claimed well into the 1930s that, like Hamlet, I've been haunted by father's ghost. Austin, when nearly 50, told his stepmother that father has made me in every sense of the word and if I accomplish anything, it will be done by his teaching and example. So strong was Joseph's impact on Austin that the son aped the father in every particular of his dress, down to the monocle, buttonhole, wing collar and Victorian tailcoat. At key political moments, the two sons reflected on what their father was thinking or what he would have thought. When Austin declined to fight for the Conservative leadership in 1911, his immediate consideration was, I fear it will be a great disappointment to my father. He was, of course, absolutely right, for, as an observer commented, I seemed to hear the great heartstrings snapping at last in Joe. When Neville became Lord Mayor of Birmingham in 1916, he told Mary Chamberlain, Joseph's widow, that at the moment of putting my armour on, I feel far short of what father's son should be. And when in 1932, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, he enacted the import duties his father had so long fought for, he emotionally presented the Commons with a slice of filial piety. My father would have found consolation for the bitterness of his disappointment if he could have foreseen that these proposals, the direct and legitimate descendants of his own proposals, would be laid before the house in the presence of one, he meant Austin, and by the lips of the other, he meant himself, his two immediate successors to his blood and name. It will be apparent from this that Neville's course had veered off plan into politics. True, after that spell as a pioneer, Neville did go into business, as Joe intended. He made a great success of turning around Elliot's Birmingham metalworking firm, and then Hoskins, the manufacturer of ships' berths. He did so to such effect he was able to keep the family's finances afloat after Joseph's enforced retirement from public life, which followed his catastrophic stroke in 1906. Yet, 
an innate radicalism, and a strong social conscience, so like that of his father, increasingly led Neville into local politics, an area Austin always disdained. Neville served on Birmingham General Hospital's governing board, and again, just like his father, he became a local councillor in 1911, making himself an acknowledged expert on housing and town planning. In 1916 came that elevation to the position of Lord Mayor, the local press agreeing that he is the true son of his father. There is a facsimile reproduction of the old man's hard, incisive tones. The Times praised him for getting things done. Just like his father before him, he became the outstanding civic leader of his generation, someone who in time of war other mayors even national leaders, looked to for an example. In point of fact, while it is true both were Birmingham MPs for decades, Neville was very much more the Birmingham politician than his brother. He was on the council, masterminded the town planning in the expanded Birmingham after 1911, and he ran the local Unionist Party for years. A few years before his death in 1914, Joseph Chamberlain recognised how much he had misjudged his sons, and he predicted that Neville was a much stronger bet for the ultimate political prize. Neville's outstanding social reformative work in Birmingham was allied to real drive and administrative talent in organising and promoting Joe's local tariff reform campaign. His enterprise and initiative were very different qualities to those of the elder son. Joseph had smoothed Austin's path to the top, getting him selected for the East Worcestershire constituency in 1892 and ensuring a ministerial post in 1895 when he bargained for appointments for his friends with his political ally Balfour in the wake of a stunning general election victory. In 1903, he again negotiated with Prime Minister Balfour that the young man should be given the second most important position in government, the Chancellorship of the Exchequer. Roy Jenkins has written that rarely can a young man of 40 have been blown further by a favourable side wind. In office, Austin showed a love for the paperwork, for tidy administration. He was an efficient but deeply orthodox Chancellor, but he was less happy engaging in the cut and thrust of political battles. That he did lead his father's tariff reform campaign after the latter's stroke was an expression of familial duty, not of deep conviction. He conceded as much to his sisters, Left to myself, I don't think I should have done much ill to anyone. But if I work and persist and fight with political beasts, it is because I am his son. The trouble was that he didn't have his father's passion or belligerence. Being deeply conservative, wanting quietly to get on, preserve the status quo and just administer, he did not have the necessary ruthlessness and single-mindedness to grab the chance of the top job when it came. In 1911, as we have seen, 
he refused to fight for the party leadership, fearing to appear too ambitious. And in 1922, he rejected the offer of prime ministership when Lloyd George proposed to step aside in his favour. Although he was a senior figure in the Conservative Party for over 30 years, he was for a long time associated with a series of failures or lost causes. His tenure of the India office in the First World War ended in his resignation, when he failed to question rigorously the conduct of the disastrous Kut campaign. His cause, tariff reform, was abandoned by the party before the war having led directly to three general election defeats. He was on the wrong side in opposing House of Lords reform. As first Lord of the Admiralty, his inattention allowed the sailors' grievances to fester into open mutiny at Invergordon in 1931. He did, however, have two notable successes. The first, to convince die-hard Conservatives to accept Lloyd George's Government of Ireland Act, setting up the Irish Republic in 1920. Then, appointed by Prime Minister Baldwin as Foreign Secretary in 1924, he brokered an unlikely deal between France and Germany, personally disarming the lingering hostility which existed between the two countries after the war. The event played to his strengths, He comfortably inhabited the role of international statesman, looking every inch the grand, suave diplomat. The Locarno Treaty of 1925, mutually guaranteeing borders between France, Germany and Belgium, was a personal triumph and dramatically reduced tensions in Western Europe. Neville, who sat in the same Baldwin cabinet as Minister of Health, was proving to have very different aptitudes and character traits. Where Austin had shied away from the issues which impacted so hard on the lives of Birmingham constituents, Neville made them an area of expertise. He arrived at Westminster in 1918, as his father had done before him, with a substantial legacy of local reform, in Neville's case encompassing slum housing, town planning workers' savings banks and hospital reform. Unlike his brother, he was nearly 50 when he got his parliamentary seat. But he rose through the ranks very quickly by virtue of those very attributes his father had always displayed. An appetite for hard work, a mastery of the detail, forensic advocacy of his case in whatever branch of social reform he was engaged. He became recognised as an expert on town planning, on health and on housing, because he threw himself into committee work in the House, dealing with transport, electricity, local war pensions and the police. So, within four years, he was appointed Minister of Health. Only he, on the Conservative side of the House, was equipped to run this super-ministry, which encompassed health, hospitals, nursing, sanitation, welfare, pensions, the poor law, health insurance, roads, housing and town planning. It was a huge job, one nowadays broken up between four or five departments. 
Yet he was to make a real success of it, for he showed a remarkable mastery of the detail and capacity for sheer hard work. His legacy by 1929 comprised a radical overhaul of local government, of the poor law, of rating, of health provision and of pensions. One could legitimately argue that he laid the foundations for the National Health Service. Here, and in his later Iron Chancellorship from 1932 to 1937, when he pulled the country back from the brink of economic disaster, he revealed a ruthlessness, a remorseless drive and ambition quite alien to his brother, but recognisably that of his father. Where Austin would be mortified by any suggestion of overt pushfulness, the epithet too often applied to his father, and would instead cultivate a reputation for gentlemanliness, of fair play, Neville was different. He attacked his opponents directly, sometimes brutally, as his father had done. He was prepared to scheme and wire-pull, just like his father. So, during his prime ministership, he manipulated the Conservative Party machine. He put pressure on critics by getting constituency parties to threaten them with deselection. He censored the press and fed it supportive storylines. Joe Chamberlain would have recognised the techniques and no doubt approved. When the opportunity of the ultimate prize came along, unlike his brother, he did not have an excess of anguish about whether he really wanted the power and the responsibility. In fact, he was very confident he knew what needed to be done. Too confident, as it transpired. By succeeding Stanley Baldwin at number 10 in 1937, Neville Chamberlain concluded the long family odyssey on which his father had embarked. After his dominant chancellorship, where he was the most powerful and articulate figure in government, it seemed that he was destined for a long and successful prime ministership. Yet, as Tacitus memorably put it, everyone believed him capable of being emperor until he actually became one. However admirable the body of social reform he masterminded, his reputation has ever after been sullied by association with the failure of his policy of appeasement with Hitler. He was convinced that he had the diplomatic skills to negotiate successfully with Hitler. Like millions of others, he thought the terms of Versailles too harsh. And he had a strong case that Imperial Britain was overstretched in trying to defend the Far East, the Mediterranean and the North Sea. So she needed to be realistic. He also knew that, practically speaking, Britain could not militarily assist Czechoslovakia, threatened with German invasion. That Britain and France were as yet unprepared for war, but that the Munich Agreement he reached bought valuable time. All that is true. But equally, it was his sternest critic, Winston Churchill, who would write the history of the war, and who shaped an enduring narrative 
which has affected assessments of Chamberlain ever since. That narrative blamed Neville Chamberlain for his culpable naivety. Part of the indictment against Neville rests on the evidence of his thinking in his weekly letters to his sisters Hilda and Ida, an invaluable trove for historians. In writing, Hitler definitely liked me, he has been very favourably impressed, and Hitler has missed the bus. He shows an unattractive self-regard, as well as a dangerous ignorance of the true nature of his antagonist. Curiously, Brother Austin could be equally guilty of conceit and boastfulness, telling his sisters that after Locarno, I feel some title to the reputation as true author of European peace, and the policy was mine in conception and mine in execution. But had Austin lived, he died just before Neville became Prime Minister, he might have been able to put him straight about Adolf Hitler. Austin was one of the few British politicians in the 1930s who saw Hitler for the aggressive warmonger he really was. The shame was he couldn't help his brother to a true understanding in 1938. Nevertheless, there is a curious synergy between them. Austin was hailed by the King and by Parliament in 1925 for masterminding European peace, and 13 years later, Brother Neville received a royal welcome and popular accolade for achieving peace for our time. In neither case did it last. Joseph Chamberlain was his generation's most charismatic politician. He had the common touch, and he induced great affection and loyalty among the people of the West Midlands. Long after his death, ordinary voters would tell journalists that they voted Conservative because they always voted for Old Joe. His sons engendered no such warmth. Though both were very happily married and were most content in the bosom of their families, this human side was not seen by the great British public. As Harold Macmillan remembered him, Austin came over as something of a fossil, a relic from the Edwardian past, a survival with his top hat, his eyeglass, his exquisite courtesy, and his rotund oratory. Neville, meanwhile, for all his industrious efforts in party organisation, was never popular electorally. His was a chilly and formal demeanour, captured in epithets which described him as Corvid, crow-like, which likened him to a Victorian undertaker, or which suggested he was weaned on a pickle. None of that can detract from the fact that Joseph Chamberlain's sons remained at the very top of British politics for many years and were intimately involved in critical government decisions in the first part of the 20th century, encompassing the Great War, its depression aftermath and the interwar European settlement. Their ambitious father would have been especially proud had he still been alive to observe the government in 1925. His elder son, surrounded by senior European foreign ministers, standing on the steps of the Palais de Justice in the Swiss resort of Locarno to announce the signing of a major peace treaty, 
while almost at the same time his younger son was winning plaudits for radically reforming pensions for the old, for widows and orphans in the House of Commons. At that moment it would have seemed that nothing could taint a glorious Chamberlain legacy. In time, history would reassess. You can find films and more podcasts about the Chamberlain dynasty and order books by Andrew Reeks on our website www.historywm.com. <laughs>